0: This Dharma talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So well, thank you all for uh, coming out to hear this talk and Can I be here this morning. A
1: quick introduction. Sure. Oh yeah, sorry. So, <laughs> so it's a great pleasure to have Shoro, um, Carla Antinucci join us. So Shoro um, and I started practice, formal practice, Zen practice within a couple months of each other, um, and practiced for many years together in uh, the Chapel Horizon Center, um, and Shuro has held many of the sort of temple positions at the Chapel Horizon Center. She's been the Eno and the temple, uh, the Tenzo and the work leader, um, the board president, you know, um, in small organizations, we all kind of uh, move around to many positions, but... Um, She's also done practice periods at Tassajara and Green Gulch Farm um, through the San Francisco Zen Center, and has um, just recently retired as a um, as a professor from Duke University and the former chair of the Classics Department at Duke. Um, and we're really delighted to have you here, so, so welcome.
0: Thank you very much, Tim. Um, yeah, it's uh, talk about causes and conditions. <laughs> I'm really, really happy to be um, back here in Austin. I actually visited once in 2007, when I was invited to give a talk at UT, and um, I wanted to check this place out, since it was affiliated with San Francisco Zen Center. Um, And uh, I was taken somewhere for lunch, and I now realized after last night that it was Spider House, I didn't (laughs) So it sort of feels familiar to be here, although lots has changed, um, and who knew that I would return and Mako would be here, and Tim would be here, wearing his extremely worn Chapel Hilton yes. Center rock suit. But <laughs> I'm sure you've helped me sew and have stitches in. i probably somewhere in there, yes. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great pleasure to be back here, and uh, thank you for the welcome, and thanks to everybody again for coming out uh, this morning. Um, so I think we advertise this talk as lineage, and who's in, who's out, so I've... Um, Lineage is, for me, our Zen family ancestors, our kind of family tree, um, which I'm sure you chant here. Um, And I'm focusing today not just on... I'm trying to talk about identity, but I'm going to focus on women, um, on the place of women in the lineage, because that's sort of an obvious place to enter, for me, this question of uh, who we are in the context of this idea of a family and of a lineage. Um, And it is ultimately about who's in and who's out, um, or the idea that there are people who are in and who are out. It's about belonging. It's about inclusion, uh, exclusion, empowerment, recognition, and disempowerment. And I really want to say that it's taken me a long time to build up the courage to actually talk about this and to kind of grapple with it myself. So what I want to share with you today is part of an ongoing inquiry for me, and it's personal. Um. And the inquiry is ongoing, and I expect to be doing this the rest of my life, actually. So, um, the context for this, for starting to try to come forward, uh, confront my own um, uh, attitudes and my own place in uh, Zen, um, came about, or sort of came to fruition, started to come to fruition last fall, when a group of us at the Chapel Hill Zen Center, which is where I I practice, um, met over the course of about a month, to study what Dogen, you know, our medieval Japanese founder and other teachers in their teachings had to say about women and about gender. And this seemed timely um, given our current situation in this country and around the world, right? All I have to say is hashtag me too, right? Uh, That was sort of the immediate context last year. And in addition, you know, it seemed kind of time to call this question in my own Sangha, because. We have in my sangha four women priests, I'm one of four, and uh, we have an our abbess, our teacher, who's been our teacher for over 20 years now, is a woman, and we have one male priest um, in the sangha currently. And so it would seem that women are you know, really visible and empowered, but at the same time I began to feel, like I couldn't duck the, the observation, that our sangha is also structured along kind of conventional gender lines. And I don't really know how it is here, so this may or may not resonate with you, but out of about probably something like 15 to 18 people who have Dohan training, there is only one woman out of this large group of the doan Rio, um, who actually is regularly a doan who regularly uh, participates in that way. Um, our elected board of directors is all male, but one elected member. Um, nearly all our early morning regulars at Zazen are men except for that one Doan, who comes every Monday morning, and at other times as well. All the Tenzos in our um, temple have been women, with one exception, in 20 years, right? So this seemed to me to be like a pattern in the end that I couldn't dodge, and yet we have these women priests, right? Most of the women are priests, as I just said. And, as I just said, a lot of the men are dedicated practitioners and disciples of our woman teacher, right? Long-term students. And here I am sitting before you, I'm a priest, I'm giving this talk, and I'm a woman, and perhaps some of you have noticed that your head teacher is a woman, (laughs) right? So what is the place and participation of women in our practice? And again, I'm coming from a very personal and particular kind of context. Now in the wider context of the San Francisco Zen Center, where many of us, maybe many of you or some of you, um, have have, maybe visited or trained, there are, in fact, now many women practitioners or teachers and practitioners, the teachers of Zen in our lineage. And your, founding, your founder is Zenke Shunbo Blanche Hartman, a woman, right? Of the 12 people who have served terms as abbot at San Francisco Zen Center since Suzuki Roshi's passing in 1971, three have been women. And there are many well-known Zen teachers in the United States outside our lineage as well. And Some of them you probably have heard of. Joan Halifax, for example, at Upaya in Santa Fe, Pat Enkyo O'Hara, at Village Zendo in New York City, and we could go on and on. These are outside of our particular lineage of San Francisco Zen Center and Suzuki Roshi. Um, And in the wider Buddhist world, there are very well-known women teachers like Pema Chodron, Sharon Salzberg, and we could add to that list very easily. So it would seem from that kind of view that Women are well represented, not only in the affiliated temples of San Francisco Zen Center, like mine, but more broadly in American Buddhism. But this situation does not hold everywhere, and the presence of women in Buddhism, in and of itself in the West, does not mean that there are no problems. In Japan itself, the homeland of our particular Zen tradition, there exist training temples for women only, separate from men, And the main temples of Soto Zen in Japan do not allow women to live and train at them full-time. In many Buddhist traditions outside of Zen, women monastics, no matter how long they have practiced, are regarded as inferior to their male counterparts and not allowed full ordination. In books on Buddhism, which I was reading when I was in my 20s and curious about practices other than the Christianity I grew up with, and now this is decades ago, right? (laughs) Um, All of the examples of teachers were men as were all the authors of those books at that time. You know, and I do remember accounts of women who had enlightenment experiences. Um, for example, in Philip Kaplow's Three Pillars of Zen, there were these wonderful stories which kind of made me think, I really want to practice Zen and get enlightened. That hasn't happened, but anyway, I'm still here. Um, <laughs> which, these stories encouraged me, even as they intimidated me. Right? And if you look even a little bit into the past, you will find Western women who were pioneers in Zen, including some who went to Japan, you know, like in the fifties and were ordained and even had small temples of their own, but they were not participating in the kind of practice and empowerment for women that are currently possible now, especially here in the United States. So actually I'm coming to this inquiry from a position of privilege. If you think of the wider context of Buddhism, I'm a woman, but here in the United States, in the West, in a convert Buddhist context, priest ordained by a woman teacher, I am giving this talk, right? I am sitting up here on the high seat. So I'm privileged. And this privilege, I came to realize, you know, is part of a much larger set of circumstances. And since Tim gave you my kind of biography, maybe some of that is clear. You know, for a long time, I accepted with gratitude, but without too much examination, this really fortunate life that I have. Um, You know, we say it's very fortunate and rare to meet the Dharma in this lifetime, and that's only a part of my fortunate life. I personally have evaded many of the restrictions and limits placed on women by our society, by religion, by custom, by culture, because of the circumstances of my particular birth, my upbringing, and especially the privilege of my education, not to mention the support of many, many people, going back to my childhood. But in my practice life, I finally had to confront this question of where are the women in the history of Zen, right? Not in my immediate context, but in the history of Zen. You know, even though women were all around me in Zen, like, where are the women in the past? And I also had to ask, you know, why it made me uncomfortable, which it did at a certain point early on, you know, that there were women who were not satisfied with the status quo, where we all chanted this list of male ancestors as part of our service I didn't really want to confront the question of why it was all men, because it seemed obvious to me, right? That's the way things were in the past, and they had been forever, but I told myself, now it's different, right? Like, here I am. It's different. And I was actually kind of satisfied with, like, an easy fix. We had stopped calling the the male lineage the patriarchs, right? Which, like, patriarchy, ah! We'd stopped calling the male teachers patriarchs, And we instead were giving them this gender-neutral label of ancestors, right? So I thought, good enough for now, right? Recently, I came across an essay that um, Melissa Miozen Blacker, who's a Zen teacher in Massachusetts, not in our lineage, and she sort of summarized where I was actually a while ago. And she said, this is a quote, at one point early in my Zen studies, she says, I witnessed a public conversation between a female student and her male Asian teacher That startled and challenged many of the assumptions I had been carrying. The student asked, Can a woman attain awakening? And the teacher said, No. And she says, After the gasps subsided, he said, and a man can't either. No man, no woman, no attaining. So for Myozen, for Melissa Blacker, you know, this encounter and this dialogue that she witnessed seemed to offer a kind of way out to take refuge in non-duality, and that's sort of where I was, right? But, she says, that as she came to understand later, seeing into the emptiness of everything is only half the path of awakening, and I finally arrived there myself, and that's stepping-off point for where I am now. So I really agree with this. The emptiness of everything is only half of the path, and it really finally sank in that women who were calling the question about patriarchy in the history of Buddhism and in their own histories, as we'll see in a minute, they were not just asking you know, a theoretical question or a question that was coming out of some ideological position. They had suffered grievous treatment at the hands of their male teachers. Some of them had suffered abuse in the practice context of trust and vulnerability. Right? Sexually abused or subjected to a, you know, the kind of most rank misogyny. And their capacity for awakening and for leading others to awakening was questioned because of their sex or gender, you know. And it hit me. It may seem obvious to you, but it hit me. That could have been me, right? And indeed, it's, since it happened to some women, it actually was something that happened to me, right? It is me. So, how do we meet even just this one fundamental aspect of our individual human selves, our gender or our gender identity, you know? And bound up in this aspect of our identity are other questions, like how we, the Sangha, how you, the Sangha, were are one body of practice, we are also many bodies. How do we actually work with this teaching of no separation and non-duality, while also clearly seeing that we are, in fact, different and again, for the purposes of this talk, I am ducking for the moment. and <laughs> come up in conversation afterwards. I'm ducking all the other ways in which we differ, which are many, and they're intersectional. Right? That is, we are not defined by any one identity or one oppression, and our experiences and our unique expression of just this person in this time and place are based in overlapping categories. Right? So to just disentangle this one thing is also kind of problematic, but at least it's a point of entry. So in inquiring into this version of, you know, the woman question, I would like to suggest that there are three responses that are currently addressing it, at least in my estimation. And the first one is the one I touched on just now, the efforts of Buddhist women who are not all of them disciples of Zen to recover women's presence and agency. And from the time of the Buddha himself. Another way, which I also just mentioned, is to extend the Me Too movement to our practice communities and to confront the victimization of women in all ways, to force accountability um, in Buddhist communities and contexts. And that is happening. Um, You know, teachers and sangha members have been held accountable in the past for really egregious and, uh, you know, finally out in the open abuses. But since Me Too, there has been an outpouring of stories and charges leading to the recent exposure and disgrace of a number of male teachers in the United States. And many women have spoken of their experiences Just with sexism, right? It it doesn't always have to do with sexual abuse or or sexual violence, right? Sexism is an everyday thing. And I'll just give you two examples that I heard of recently. These are not my stories, but the stories of others. Um, I heard a woman priest in a different lineage from ours tell a story about a male peer, another priest, who wordlessly expected her to accept a piece of trash, you know, and dispose of it. He just handed it to her, like, you take care of this, right? She was flabbergasted. And women can be held to a different standard because we are women. For example, told to be softer or some other gender-conforming way to be. And I have actually personally experienced that. So it can come from women to women, right? We know that misogyny is something that is embedded in the culture and it isn't restricted to men, from men to women, right? It's not limited to men controlling women. The third way is to investigate the teachings, right? The important teachings of Dogen, our 13th century Japanese founder of Soto Zen, about difference and especially about the gender line. And this was what we were doing in Chapel Hill last winter. And we don't often hear these particular teachings because of the volume of Dogen's work, right? And there is so much to study, right? And his teachings, the ones that we are most familiar with, are really critical. Um, The ones that we chant during service, I'm not sure if you do it here, but we do it, and San Francisco Zen Center does it, like Genjo Koan, just for an example, right? So I want to take these ways in turn, and I'm not going to spend as much time on each of them, but just to kind of touch on each of these three approaches. And the first one, women in Buddha's time, right? So many of you may know these stories, and if so, I hope you'll be patient, and for those of you who don't know, maybe it'll be new. So together with the women who have been asking about where the women were throughout the history of the 2,500-year history of Buddhism. We can start with Buddha himself and his first Sangha, his monks who were male, home leavers, who wandered during most of the year but gathered during the rainy season to practice together and hear his teachings. And that is the origin of our practice periods. And the Buddha's wife, from his early life as Siddhartha, before he was Buddha, um, whose whose name was Yashodara, and who was the mother of his son, had sent their son to his father to ask for his inheritance. Right? Buddha could have been a king and of course you know you can almost predict that what he got was his father's inheritance was he became his father's disciple. So together with Pajapati, the Buddha's aunt and who was his foster mother and with many other women, Yashodara went to the Buddha and they all requested ordination right? and in fact Pajapati according to some of versions of this story had already shaved her head and put on a saffron robe and they all walked many miles barefoot to reach the Buddha with their request. But he turned them down, and he turned them down more than once. And finally, it's his disciple, Ananda, who was also, as many of you may know, his attendant and his cousin, Right, so it was all in the family initially. And Ananda was also the preserver of his oral teachings. Ananda asked him, well, aren't women capable of practice and realization? The same question that came to Melissa Blacker's uh, Asian teacher. And the Buddha acknowledged that women could attain nirvana, just as the men could. And at last, he agreed to allow women to become renunciant monks. But women were subject to additional rules, and one of these was that the most novice male monk could correct any female monk, but of course not vice versa, and that women always had to defer even to junior male monks. So there was an inequality built into this original acceptance of women's aspiration um, to be and and practice. And from this we can see that women were present in the Sangha as ordained monks from Buddha's own time, right? But already there was some difference in treatment. And also there was a prediction that the Dharma, the true Dharma, would not last as long because women were now in the mix. So it's like, you know, the Garden of Eden always has that little problem, the woman, right? After the Buddha's death, the separation of men and women, and the proliferation of extra rules for women happened. And even today in Theravada Buddhism, women are working towards full equality and ordination in Asia and also elsewhere where this this, uh, Theravada Buddhism has taken root. Since the full ordination of women had ceased, had kind of been broken as a practice. Now in our own Zen school of Buddhism, we have this supposedly unbroken line of disciples going back to the seven Buddhas before Buddha, right down to Dogen and his disciples. And these are the names which are often chanted in long services in our temples. And they're all male. And they start with Mahakasyapa, whose understanding Buddha recognized. He held up a flower, right? And Mahakasyapa smiled and he got it. He was the first uh, actual ancestor. And that's followed by Ananda, who interceded for women. And then it goes on from there. And, you know, we can regard this in our time rather than it as an historical document to be taken completely literally. We can can take this as a representation of the unbroken handing on of the teaching and practice person to person through time. And one which was created, this idea of this lineage, was created much later than Buddha's time. It's not something we got handed down to us from Buddha. As a representation of how that person-to-person teaching comes to us, however, we have to acknowledge that this lineage obviously doesn't include women. And indeed, we used to call this list, as I mentioned, the patriarchs, although now we use the word ancestors to be less obviously exclusive, but it is what it is. But study and research will show, and has shown, that there are many women in our Zen stories who practiced and taught and not just with other women, you know, separate from the men. And these women had male disciples or in really critical encounters with male disciples who themselves became masters and abbots of temples with many followers. It's just that these women were not included in the official list of ancestors. They were not empowered formally and invested with the privilege and honor of being a lineage ancestor. And some of these stories are the ones I'll talk about this afternoon for those of you who are interested and can come. So this brings me actually to the third response to the women question, which is to create a women's lineage like the men's, a separate list to represent all the women known and unknown who practiced and realized and taught. And you have a a list in your, um, the next room right there in the niche I noticed when I got here. And this has obviously been done through the efforts of many women and men and is now in use in several temples. Although weirdly enough, not an article. So this is another reason why I decided to tackle this, that for many years we had talked about starting to chant the women's lineage and we would never done it and I thought I'm gonna kind of like confront this. So this list is constructed parallel, the women's list is constructed to parallel the traditional male one and it begins with mythical figures, the full list such as Kanan or Avalokiteshvara, um, or at least one version of it does and then women exemplars divided into three groups, just like the men's lineage, and just like the transmission of Buddhism, you know, occurred, India, China, and Japan. And these start with Buddha's stepmother, Pajapati, and end with Chiyono, who is a contemporary of Dogen's, and who became the abbot of the first Zen woman's monastery in Japan. Now, as part of the effort of recovering women's stories and experiences, and remembering all women by saying their names, it has emerged that within the male line there may be one hidden woman and this is the teacher of the Indian monk Bodhidharma or Bodhidharuma who brought Zen to China. His teacher, Hanyatara or a Prajnatara in the original pronunciation, may have been a woman. There are traditions in India and Korea that say that this Hanyatara was a woman, a homeless wanderer with no family in East India who didn't even know her own name. Right there, that's very Zen, right? Don't even know your own name. And she found a master who was called Punyamitra or Funyamita, as we say it in when we chant. And this Hanyatara was ordained and eventually became the head of her own school of Buddhism, of uh, the Sevastavadan school, which no longer exists as an independent school. But nevertheless, this is really interesting. The teacher of the Buddhist monk who brought Zen from India to China was, according to these traditions, a woman and her gender may have been lost in Chinese tradition because of the assumption that all ancestors were male, and also because Chinese doesn't specify gender the way English, for example, does. But in a way, this is like a token, right? Oh, one woman in the male list, but it's like a minor victory, right? This loss of gender identity can also be found, though, in a really important story about Bodhidharma himself, and from here we are coming directly to Dogen Zenji's teachings Um, So for those of you who don't know about Bodhidharma, he is the monk who famously came before the emperor of China when he arrived from India, and he totally baffled the court and the emperor with his behavior, right? (laughs) The emperor asked for the highest meaning of the holy teachings, and Bodhidharma said, nothing holy, vast emptiness, right? Answers to questions like that. He also asked, what's the merit, you know, that I've earned for founding all these temples, right? No, No, nothing, right? Nothing. You don't get any merit, and when the emperor asked this monk, you know, this Indian barbarian, who was it who stood before him, Bodhidharma said, I don't know. And then Bodhidharma went off to a cave and he meditated for nine years and before he even accepted any students. And late in his life, he called together four of his disciples and he asked them to demonstrate their understanding of Dharma. And Dogen talks about this, but I want to tell the traditional story first. So the first monk steps forward, Daofu steps forward and said, this is his answer, it is not bound by words and phrases, nor is it separate from words and phrases. This is the function of the way. And Bodhidharma replied, you have attained my skin. The second disciple, Songzhu, stepped up and said, it is like a glorious glimpse of the realm of Akshobhya Buddha. Seen once, it need not be seen again. And Bodhidharma said to him, this disciple, you have attained my flesh. The third, Daoyu said, the four elements are all empty. The five skandhas are without actual existence. Not a single dharma can be grasped. Bodhidharma said, you have attained my bones. So it looks like we're going from outside to inside here. And finally, the fourth, Vekho, Daza Weko, came up and he bowed deeply. And without saying anything, he returned to his place. And Bodhidharma said, you have attained my marrow. And that is actually the person who became the ancestor, the one we chant as Taiso Eka in our uh, lineage chant. And this is the person who formally inherited his authority from Bodhidharma. But what is not so obvious from this exchange is that the second disciple, Songjur Dao Daoren, was female, the one who attained his flesh. So, you know, a a kind of standard way of looking at this story is to assume that only the fourth disciple... Hueco, right, Taiso Eka, really got Bodhidharma's teaching, and that his answer, which was that without words at all was superior to all the others, right? This is the other thing. Zen is a a teaching beyond words and scriptures, right? So not saying anything and just bowing, right? So Zen, right there. Right? And it also occurred to me, he gets to go last, right? So he one-ups everybody by just bowing. but anyway, he gets to go last, having heard everyone else's expression. Um, but why else, you know, if he wasn't the best, if he didn't give the best answer, why else would he alone have inherited Bodhidharma's authority, receiving the robe and the bowl that represent transmission of the Dharma? But Dogen tells us, this is not the only way to understand the story, and so now we're entering Dogen's teaching. Um, he refers to this exchange in two places, um, in his chapter which is called kato, or twining vines in English, and in um another longer teaching uh, where he talks about this called Raihai Tokuzui. Uh, Raihai Tokuzui, Raihai is bowing, like a full prostration. Toku means to get or attain, and Zui is the marrow. So bowing, attaining, the marrow. And initially we might think this again refers to marrow as the heart of the matter, as marrow is to the structure of our bodies. But Dogen says otherwise in both of these fascicles, in both Kato and in Raihai Tokuzui entwining vines he says for example and this is a quote from Dogen the ancestor's body and mind is the ancestor skin flesh bones and marrow it is not that the marrow is close and the skin is far so in other words each of bodhidharma's disciples including songjur completely express their true selves and each is complete in themselves as Dogen says a little bit later there is an ancestor whose full body is bones there is an ancestor whose full body is marrow. Each is an ancestor. And says Dogen, there is an ancestor whose full body is attaining myself, yourself. So this is the transmission of the Dharma that Buddhist lineages are expressing for beginningless beginning to us. So that's another take on this traditional story. And in uh, Raihai Tokusui, Dogen quotes Shakyamuni Buddha saying, and this is A quote from Shakyamuni, in encountering teachers who expound unsurpassable enlightenment, do not consider their caste or facial appearance. Do not dislike their shortcomings or judge their activities. Bow and pay respect to them three times a day and do not arouse the mind of confusion. I love that. Frequently arousing the mind of confusion. If you act in this way, the path of enlightenment will certainly have a place. And this is how and this is, I'm sorry, Buddha. again, this is how I have practiced, sorry, Dogen says, this is how I have practiced since I aroused the aspiration for enlightenment, and now I have attained the unsurpassable complete enlightenment. No, I'm sorry, the quote's at the end of that. That was shocking me again. Dogen goes on to list many instances where, quote, foolish people don't bow to people who have attained understanding, but whom they consider their inferiors, you know, younger, female, aged, newer to practice, and so on, right? All the people we think that are not don't have it, and we don't need to pay attention to them. And then Dogen explicitly says, quote, It is an excellent custom of study that when a nun, i.e. a female monk, a female priest, has attained the way, attained dharma, and started to teach, monks who seek dharma and join and study join her assembly, bow to her, and ask about the way. It is just like finding water at the time of thirst. This is pretty great, actually. Then he mentions Chinese women teachers who taught men, and all of these individuals have been incorporated in the new women ancestors, it's not new anymore, but the the newish women's ancestors document that I mentioned, although none of them inherited the dharma from each other in the way that men did, and they didn't inherit, right, And, and actually Dogen in the official list doesn't have any female inheritors either. Dogen says, finally, why are men special? Emptiness is emptiness. Four great elements are four great elements. Five skandhas are five skandhas. Women are just like that. Both men and women attain the way. You should honor attainment of the way. Do not discriminate between men and women. This is the most wondrous principle of the Buddha way. And he concludes his chapter. All sentient beings should bow to and revere the merit of receiving the Buddha's broad offering of awakening. Who would not call it the marrow of attaining the way? That's how he concludes Raihai Tokuzui. So, you know, this is really encouraging. Dogen, our founder, seemed to get it, right? But at the same time, as I said, Dogen's official heirs were men. And we honor Dogen and his successor, Kaisan. If you go upstairs and look at the Kaisando, there they are, right? Along with Blanche, that's good. But they're, they're, they are his official founders. And they are our founders, like Buddha and women. You know, Buddha... Recognized and included women, but they weren't really fully incorporated. So now at the end, I'd like to come back to Me Too and to our separation now and our suffering. And I wanted to tell you again a couple of stories. Um, At a meeting I attended of Soto Zen priests from all over the country last fall, um, there was an explicit effort to actually encounter the Me Too moment within this group of priests. They were all priests. And the women met together apart from men and talked openly and, to me, heartbreakingly and shockingly. I, it, it shocked me, I'll admit it, of experience that they, that they had had. And there were women in this group, priests who were in their 20s and in their, up to women who were in their 70s. And they all had stories, um, up to including sexual assault by their teachers. And the men actually met separately with a facilitator to confront their own experiences. And I think the idea was to confront patriarchy by themselves, away from the women, to confront their entanglement with patriarchy, however it was for them. And then after those meetings, the next day, those who wished to, not everybody wanted to, but those who wished to join together in a mixed group, shared their experiences with each other as much as they wished. No one had to talk, but people could talk. And those present in that meeting, the women present, heard how men, too, were sexually victimized and abused surprise right and we were all reminded that all women although women have particular experiences which is important to bring forward all of us all of us are human beings and we are all subject to suffering and we are and we all do this to each other right there there are variations on this but it's our human condition and at that meeting there was a really powerful moment of shared grief we were crying and reconciliation um, at the end of this encounter, and we all vow to keep meeting our suffering and separation fully and to support each other in doing so, whether together or divided by whatever dividing line we We, we felt we had to honor. And here I want to invoke um, Angel Kyoto Williams, who was just here with you this week. Some of you may have heard her speak, and I don't know what she talked about here, but in, she says in a recent essay in the most recent Bod- uh, Buddha Dharma magazine, she says, This is where, this is a quote, this is where your liberation is on the line. Many people in positions of dominance don't know their own story. When you presume, and now the aside is as I did, when you presume that this is just the way it is or that you got here on your own strengths, then you don't recognize that you even have a story. And I have to say, as if it wasn't clear already, that this has been me at certain times in my life. Um, And the Reverend Williams goes on to say, if you don't think you have a story because you're privileged, that just means you're completely in the dark. You have a right to reclaim yourself, she says, but you have to do the work of finding out how it is how it is that who you truly are has been obscure. She says in her essay, my liberation is not separate from yours. Right? This is the Bodhisattva vow to liberate all beings. So it's up to us. <laughs> each of us individually and together to integrate our practice and understanding with our personal individual uniqueness, with our stories, in this society, in this place, and at this time. Dogan teaches that all the ancestors, and I would say all the women too, are here when we practice. They only exist when we practice. You know, he says, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. And realizing the truth of this, is my practice and my vow. And what about you, right. May we all realize the Buddha way. Thank you for listening. If there's time,
2: I'm happy to call. Any question. Does anybody have a comment, question for Yes. Oh, me.
0: You. Um, You're the first person I saw. <laughs>
2: yeah. um, so, this idea of one personal story and um, identity came up when Reverend Angelo Williams was here, too, and I realized I'm not exactly sure what that means. I mean, okay, so I used to come a lot, and then I was on the board and I didn't come after we had this fracture in the community. Am I speaking loud enough? Yeah. And then now I'm trying to get back in the swing of things. And uh, this this idea of identity and all is, I think, uh, kind of like, oh, uh-oh, to me, because... Uh, this place can be, or any, maybe any meditation practice can be a kind of refuge where you kind of ignore things, really. Maybe you're just kind of coming to terms with some things personally. But how do, how you do that in the open, or how you start that kind of journey, is, uh, I guess, something to explore. And like you said at the very beginning, I guess it's a journey of a lifetime, because there's so many thoughts and feelings about all these issues. Like if you, if uh, after. Uh, Reverend Williams spoke I went home and woke up in the middle of the night and did this two nights in a row mm-hmm. thinking about race and my relationship to race mm-hmm. and uh, capitalism mm-hmm. and identity and probably the same thing is going to be true for gender. It just stirs up a lot of stuff that it feels a little dangerous to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, but on the other hand, what am I here for then? Because I'm not here to go to sleep again or to settle back. I mean, I could feel myself getting riled up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I'm just curious about how do you, I do, do you sit with it every day, or do you lie, or do you, you know, that sort of thing. That's not really a question. I just made a statement. Sorry,
0: That's <laughs> fine. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking this way. I mean, I, I, I told you a little bit about the situation in my own temple, which is mostly, you know, really harmonious, and people do, I think, find it a place of refuge and... They come there to be, I mean, frequently people say, you know, they have an expectation of safety. There's some expectation that you come to a place like this and you're safe. And yet, you know, it's a community of human beings and we we are constantly tripping over ourselves and each other, right? That's the, the, the point of it is that any human organization and community, there's going to be entanglement. There's going to be conflict and it's how we, how do we deal with it? So I think this is where the teachings of compassion, which I haven't mentioned, really come in that you know we vow the vow is to keep showing up and that might not that might mean you have to take a break you have to you know hit the reset and I've just started reading a book by Joan Halifax about what she calls these edge states where you're at that you know point of looking over the cliff and you're trying to figure out can I can I stay at the edge like this can I jump and and do something helpful or am I just going to fall and if I fall she's saying you know that's okay But then what do I, that some of the greatest growth is when you fall off the cliff, right? That's what her experience of a lifetime has taught her, and she's writing about it. And I've just begun the book, so I can't really say more than that. But I'm finding it encouraging to think that you can fall off the cliff. The whole community can (laughs) maybe fall off the cliff. But that's where we grow, right? That's where we pick ourselves up and take up the practice, which is bigger than any particular incident or person or you know situation and the, the whole community comes together to do that right that we we find the refuge in each other but we have the expectation of how we try at least we aspire to meet each other and it's confronting our own suffering and the suffering of others and it takes great courage it takes great courage i think to do that i mean it's taken everything i have really to do it um so thank you for the statement and um I encourage you to keep showing up for yourself. And yeah, it gets deeper and deeper, right? You start with one thing like gender, and it just keeps going. And there are times when I want to say, I oh, know, I can't take that up, capitalism too big. You know, and, and in fact, you know now I'm retired, as you heard, and I'm living off my investments. so I'm so capitalism supporting me right now. <laughs> right? I don't really want to look at that too much, and yet I know what's, I, I, you can't actually avoid what's going on. So the other thing is, I can't be separate from what's going on, right? My security is built on other people's insecurity, and then I can recognize that and do everything I can to acknowledge that and help to, you know, to share my resources. I mean, I retired in part because I, had, I just had to get out of there, but also I thought, I've been a priest now for nine years, and this is what I want to do. And, the, and so I, I let go of a tenured position and job security and all that to do it. And now, like if the stock market crashes, I'm, that's it for me, right? So I'm actually totally entangled with it, for better or worse. It's my karma, but I can acknowledge it. I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to. Right? Yes.
2: Uh, you mentioned that there's this lineage of uh, women that goes all the way from India through China, Japan, and then yeah. uh, here to the U.S. And you also mentioned that it was broken, that so it's not com-
0: continuous. Well, none of them are, are completely continuous, and they bifurcate, right? So we have we have this strand that we follow. It's almost like, you know, following a particular branch of a tree, and there are many other branches. So, mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about the male lineage, even, is you know, it continues. If you chant the fuller version, like a Tassahara, it goes on for another half a page, right down to Suzuki Roshi, and then what? Right? You know, there. So, does it include living? people traditionally it includes only people who are deceased so you know blanche hartman for example but blanche isn't part of the women's lineage and it actually sort of stops in the medieval period in the case of the male uh, lineage that we generally chant so it's like oh safely in the past right but it, so now i think the question is how do you how do we continue this and how do we decide but i i actually kind of doesn't matter to me in a way because i feel like we are really all buddhas and ancestors if we can really fully enact that in our communities and practice. You know, One question that was asked of me in Chapel Hill was, well, why don't we combine the two lineages? Why don't we put the men together with the women you know, somehow? Like interleave them? And I said, well, then it isn't really this idea of an un, you know, a kind of continuous thread in the, in the formal way, but maybe in the future that will happen. I don't know, but I think the important thing is to be asking these questions and finding these stories and saying, it isn't necessarily how I thought it was. You know that's the most important thing to me, but I think it's going to keep un- unfolding.
2: Yeah,
0: but I, what I was saying, though, I just want to make the clarification: the point about the brokenness is that in the Theravadan tradition, there there was this break in the in full ordination for women, and now it's like this catch twenty two. Oh, there are, there are no women who can ordain other women, so we can't ordain women. So there's some men who are trying to intervene and recreate. A legitimate full ordination for women and it's been a big struggle um, I don't know that much about it but I know it's been a big struggle
2: yeah. yes so with this realization of widespread uh, sexual abuse um, gender oppression uh, sexism and individuals encounter with with that it seems like an understandable or predictable reaction to it would be anger yeah and how do you People who have this realization that this is going on and has gone on sort of avoid being swept away by anger from their own project to get to a more enlightened position.
0: You know, I think if we avoid anything, that's a problem, right? We have to include everything. I mean, there's nothing that can, can that can really be excluded from practice. It, it should include everything. Right. But how not to be overwhelmed and right. totally discouraged? I think some people are and have been. And will be, and you know, and it, it doesn't just have to do with these kinds of issues. But mm-hmm. there are any number of scandals that can have to do with other things, right. and have rocked lots of Zen centers, including San Francisco Zen Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know, there are some people who just va- stay with their vow, which is that they believe they have experienced, they've tasted something in the teaching and in the practice that they want to continue, and they stay with that, and they confront. All the suffering that's going on, their own and that of others, and they try to help other people confront it as well. But you know, people do sometimes need to go away, and they sometimes come back a lot later, or they go off somewhere else and and find refuge somewhere else. And a lot of times, you know, at least in my own experience, my process takes a long time when I'm processing something that's personal. And uh, you know, it may take me a long time to wake up and real remember compassion. And this is something I'm really trying to remember is compassion for myself and for others, and try to be just with it, with the suffering, and just constantly practice compassion. And I don't think you can go wrong with that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yes? I just wondered,
0: who uh, who made the list of anthems? How How are those two lists put together? Well, (laughs) lost in the midst of time. um, (laughs) So my understanding about the men, the male list is, you know, this, this partly comes out of the Chinese practice of ancestor veneration, right? And le- the legitimation of certain lines of authority in Buddhism within, you know, certain teachers and their disciples. And so, you know, all of this stuff that we do is a lot of it is coming straight out of Chinese ancestor worship and Confucian ideas about, you know, honoring the ancestors. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. I don't think it delegitimates it. I personally feel grateful for this practice and that however it comes to us, it's been people who have passed it down from generation to generation, right? It's my teacher gave it to me or, or offered it to me and I'm, you know, totally grateful to her and all the other teachers and everybody I practice with. They're all my teachers, like in some wider sense. So, you know, there's a whole, there are books and books written about the male lineage. The women's lineage was, a, was an effort on the part of both men and women, I have to acknowledge the men's role in this, um, to to create a kind of parallel document that could be offered uh, to women who are receiving the precepts, whether as lay people or as priests. And there are different versions of it. I think it's kind of become standardized in at least San Francisco Zen Center temples. You know, you can go to any temple affiliated with San Francisco Zen Center and they're chanting the same thing more or less. Maybe some, every now and then somebody gets edited out. We find out there was an, a Chinese empress who turned, we found out was a terrible person, and we, we chucked her. <laughs> so that sort of thing can happen. Um, but in any case, you know, there are other temples in, 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 that I've, I've got their, their women's lineage, and they, it's a slightly different lineage, um, different people appear. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. Um, But it was a group effort from people in different lineages to put this together. And uh, now, you know, people are being ordained or receiving the precepts formally. In some places are being offered both the male and the women's lineage, the papers that you get when you receive a, a Raksu or an Okesa. They get the traditional male one, and then they get this women's lineage. And it's being represented in some temples as a circle, Right? You can enter it. Any, it's, that's the idea of all the Buddhas and ancestors being present in space and time. They're here with us. You know, They appear when we're here. It's, th- there isn't this kind of just linearity to it. And even in the mail list, if you look at your lineage papers, those of you who have them, you know, it goes down to all of these figures to you. And even if you're not a priest or a, you know, a Dharma-transmitted teacher, it's to you and then back to the Buddha. So it is, in fact, a circle. So it's not just branching, it's this, right? So that's, that's something that's happened within the last 20 years, the Women's Lineage document that we are currently working with. Maybe that's enough. Maybe it's time for tea and cookies. Okay. Thank you very much.